FOMO. developers tend to be very systems thinking oriented and they think in, in processes and they think about uh, essentially how pieces fit together to build a, build a system because that's kind of how code works. And I think people who are naturally drawn to the world of software are drawn because they the systems thinking really resonates with them. But not everybody is wired that way. And the result of that ends up being is you you have this big divide between people who are business executives and people who are technically minded. That's Jeff Lawson, founder and CEO of Twilio and author of the new book, Ask Your Developer. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens. When the world's spinning out of control, it can be impossible to know what to do and what to miss out on. That's called FOMO, which is short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term and I'm the world's first FOMologist. And this is the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers, people I call FOMO sapiens, how they live and work with conviction no matter what life throws at them. FOMO. FOMO. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another week of FOMO, FOMO. sapiens. And today I have a very impressive guest. His name is Jeff Lawson. He is a CEO and co-founder of one of the most dynamic companies in Silicon Valley right now. It's called Twilio. If you haven't heard of it, we'll tell you all about it. And it has a market capitalization of over $50 billion. And at a time when every business is digital, he's going to share the secret of how to make sure that the business and the technical sides of a business work together, whether you're at a startup or in a big company like Twilio. Now, Jeff is a serial entrepreneur. This was not his first time at the rodeo. Before Twilio, he held a number of high-profile roles, including as founding CTO at StubHub, remember that one? And also, he was one of the original product managers at Amazon Web Services. Jeff grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, started his first company in middle school, and earned his BS in computer science and film and video from the University of Michigan. He is the author of the new book, Ask Your Developer, How to Harness the Power of Software Developers and Win in the 21st Century. And by the way, he's donating the proceeds from the book to organizations which teach underrepresented populations to code. Now, here is the reason why I wanted to have Jeff on the show. There's really three reasons. First of all, his life story is super interesting for anybody who's trying to figure out what they want to do with their life. He went from doing pure startups. In fact, he dropped out of college for a little while and then ended up at Amazon. So that's kind of an interesting, unexpected way of building a career. Number two, he's a software engineer, but he's also a business person. So he gets both sides of this dynamic we're going to talk about today of the business people and the tech people not really knowing how to talk to each other. And finally, he will tell us how to hire tech talent, which for those of you who want to build a business, given the fact that every company is digital at this point, you're going to need to know. While you are listening, I want you to do me a little favor. Don't multitask too much, but go check out my new audio course, How to Be a Part-Time Entrepreneur at Himalaya.com slash part-time. Remember, if you use the code part-time, you get 14 days free. You can check it out and let me know what you think of it, okay? That is my small ask for the week. We are done. So let's move on to the interview. Now, as I was researching Jeff's background, of course, I'd heard of Twilio, but to be honest with you, I didn't really know what they did. And that was particularly strange for me because I actually invested in a company many years ago that was their first acquisition. So I remember at the time thinking, thanks, Twilio, for buying this company, but I never really figured out what they did. And so I went to Google, and of course, Google gave me a definition that sounds like this, which meant nothing to me. Twilio is an American cloud communications platform as a service company that allows software developers to programmatically make and receive phone calls, send and receive text messages, and perform other communication functions using its web service APIs. 
That is a mouthful. And so to start our conversation, I asked Jeff to simply put all of that in layman's terms. Most people actually use Twilio every day. They don't even know it. So imagine when you get, you know, food delivered and you get that text message notification that says, you know, your driver has picked up your food. They'll be there in five minutes. Well, Twilio is likely powering that communication. Well, let's say you are taking a ride share and you need to call the driver because, you know, you're, you're trying to find each other on the street corner. Twilio is by powering that phone call that you made between, uh, to the driver. Or if you call a company for customer service, you know, Twilio is probably powering you to that chat or that phone call to that um, contact center. So Twilio is a software platform. But what we've done is we've taken the whole world of communications and turned it into software building blocks that software developers who are building all of those applications that we all now use every day on our phones and on the web, we let those developers put communications with you, their user, the center of those experiences. And so we now have 220,000 customers who range, you know, every kind of company you can imagine from banks to travel companies to food delivery and ride shares and hotels and, 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 and you know, rental lodge, everything you can imagine. But the common thread among all of these companies across all of these different industries is that every one of these companies, they're turning into software companies. And they're building software, whether it's mobile apps or, or websites that are here to delight and amaze you, their customer. And when they build a great experience in software, then you become a happier, more loyal customer. And the way they do that is with Twilio to engage with you across all those channels, text messaging, voice calls, video, email, all those communications channels that allow you to interact with the companies you do business with. Twilio is powering for those companies. It, it kind of reminds me of the Matrix a little bit. Now, now everybody who's listening to this, when they when they get that nice text message from their food delivery company or from their ride sharing company or from the other companies that you work with, they're going to say, "Thanks, Jeff," uh, because it is it's something that makes all of our lives easier. Now, now your company has had an incredible year. Your stock has more than quadrupled. Your valuation, as of the last time I checked, was above sixty billion dollars, which is no small sum. And I'm wondering, just as we go back a year to March of 2020, and you saw the changes coming in the pandemic, did you think, okay, this is going to be the greatest year of our history? Did you think this is going to be a terrible year? Like, how did you start to, as the pandemic took hold, how did you think it was going to affect things? Well, you know, as the pandemic um, set in last year, I think like most people, we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, there was... We were scared for our personal safety and worried about our employees and, and all the things that everybody was worried about. But an interesting thing happened. I remember it was that the weekend really where things got real here in the United States. It was that weekend. I remember it was Friday the 13th. It was March 13th last year. And that, that week was the, the week when lockdowns started happening. They canceled the NBA and, and all of that. And that weekend, an interesting thing happened. And obviously we were doing all sorts of planning. We had shut down all of our global offices earlier that week. My inbox started filling up with developers, with customers, with, with investors and other people. And they were all some variant of an email saying, Hey, we're, you know, we're building a thing. It's, it's obviously it's urgent. It's critical. It's COVID related. Can you help us out? And, my, and I just got so many different emails and there were independent developers who were helping nonprofits. There were people trying to help their community. Um, 
people trying to match, you know, people who would, would deliver groceries to the elderly. There were people who were trying to keep their employees safe. Like everything you can imagine, businesses reconfiguring themselves on the fly for this new stay-at-home, shelter-in-place world that we were in. And everybody had to pick up their tools and build the answer to the problems that no one knew we were going to have just a few weeks before. Mm. That's amazing. And it's amazing to see the builder spirit, right? Because Twilio, we're not like a finished application. We're building blocks that people use to go build the answers to problems that they see that need to get solved. And so when a society-wide challenge, like a pandemic, barrels down on us, it creates so many new problems that the builders of the world need to pick up their tools and start building. And that's what we saw. And in that moment, I remember feeling like, wow, not only are we going to have to manage our own transition to work from home and, and all the stresses that are going on in personal lives and then all of us working together, but we have an important role to play to help our customers through this moment and help them build the answers that they need. And we came up with our kind of mission during COVID. We said our job is to emerge stronger. And the way we're going to do that is by investing first in our employees, making sure they're healthy and safe, and then investing in our customers because they are all going through this too. And they are all needing to build things that they didn't know they would need. And we're here to help them. And so I think in that moment of seeing all the builders of the world kind of step up, and I literally saw it coming through in my inbox that weekend, got that sense that we were going to play a special role here. And we really stepped up for our customers. There's so many new use cases that have arisen in the last year, whether it's the curbside pickup at retailers, the telemedicine use cases for seeing a doctor remotely over video, the uh, distance learning use cases also around video, and um, people having to send their contact centers to and have all those agents now work from home. We had many companies who were uh, using Flex, our contact center product, because they didn't realize that they would ever have to send all their employees home, right? So so many things that arose during the course of the year that we were really um, proud that our product and our team and what we built was able to not just be relevant, but really help our customers and society at large through the challenges the pandemic brought. Tudo bem, meus queridos fomo sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Yeah. And, and in the last year, if there's one thing we learned, it's that every business is a digital business. We're going to get into that in more detail, but you have come out with this book, which is pretty perfectly timed. I don't know how the heck you wrote the book during the pandemic when you're so busy at work, but it's called Ask Your Developer. And it's really about the role of software and where we're going in the future with software and businesses. But what I love about the book and what, what really got me from the beginning is I cracked it open. I was sitting in the park the other day on a rare, warm New York spring day. And 
I cracked it open and just you sort of tell the story of the early days of your own experience as a tech entrepreneur. And you were in you were in college at the University of Michigan. You started a company called Versity, which sold notes to college classes. And I love you had this slogan. We don't condone you skipping class. We just make it easier which is fantastic. And the you, unofficial you, slogan, I have to say. Okay, unofficial. I guess <laughs> I won't forget it. But then you sell this company uh, to a company called collegeclub.com. And by that point, you'd burned through $10 million in VC. You'd made $14,000 in revenue. So that's a kind of an interesting combo. And then you, you, the company you sold it to was going to go public, but eventually the market crashed and you basically lost everything. And so this was this formative early experience, you know, as a tech entrepreneur, Entrepreneur that didn't turn out as you had hoped. You, I imagine, were dreaming of riches. What did you learn from that first experience? Well, yeah, you're right. You know, at age 21, uh, you know, a little bit like right out of college, started a company. We literally went from the dorm room to having this thing worth hundreds of millions of dollars in about 18 months, and then all the way back down to zero <laughs> as the, the the crash occurred and the company that acquired us for for all stock. Uh, failed to go public and was literally bankrupt, you know, three months after they acquired us. And yeah, I remember, you know, before all that stuff went down, thinking, this is too easy. You know, like not just this, like building a business, or make, it was like life. Like, oh, this is just, oh, this is, this is really easy, right? And, uh, and of course, having reality, um, you know, hit was, was useful for a 21-year-old realizing, okay, life's not actually this easy. But um, more than anything, what I remember realizing at that time was that, and part of that is like the Silicon Valley ethos of, you know, of, of recognizing failure as a part of the process of building and just realizing that basically the two things that stick with you for the entirety of your life and your career are really your knowledge and your word. And so regardless of whether or not your business succeeds or fails, the thing that will stick with you forever for everything you might do for your next thing or your next thing or your next thing is the knowledge. What are the things that you learned? Like no one can take that away from you. If your stock goes to zero, you still get to keep your knowledge, which is pretty useful. Um, you, might, <laughs> you may question that knowledge, but you still get to keep it. But the other thing is your word, your relationships. And that's why, you know, after, uh, you know, Versity ended up being no return for our investors, you know, I, I, you know, I, I chatted with some of our biggest investors, you know, VCs that put in the money and they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll fund your next thing. And, you know, as a 21 year old, they like, yeah, like, that's amazing. Why? Wow, I just lost all this money. But really what they were saying was we believe in, in you, right. In your, your word and the person you are, you're the, you're a kind of person that we would happily fund again because you, you know, you were a, a good entrepreneur and you held up your part of the bargain, right? The market didn't work out, but, but you did your part. And I often advise people when they ask me for, for career advice, what I tell them, you know, that's kind of what I learned early on is, you know, your knowledge and your word. And, and so if you keep those two things growing and intact through your career, like you'll, you'll ultimately do all right. Yeah. If you fail with integrity, right? I think that's the big, the big thing that I always see. I've invested in companies where company fails, but you've been in communication, you know, what's going to happen. The person did things the right way. I've invested in other companies where you get a call one day and sort of like, sorry, we failed. And you're sort of like, what? And I do think that 
there's a way to fail that could position you for future success with the same people because they know who you are and they can back you again. Now you went on to do a couple more startups and then you did something that you made a choice that I thought was kind of interesting and unpredictable. You ended up going to a big company. You went to Amazon Web Services, which I can imagine a lot of people who look up to you and they're listening to this show and say, I want to build a Twilio one day, wouldn't necessarily expect to go from startup, startup, startup to then massive company. So take us through how you thought about that and what was the, the reason that you did that? You know, I had a high school English teacher and she always said, variety is the spice of life. <laughs> and, you know, I at that point in my career, I had done three startups in a row. And, you know, they were not huge scale um, startups. I think the biggest, my first one was about, you know, 50 people or so when we sold it, I think maybe 75 people. And, you know, I was the first CTO at StubHub, but that was super early at StubHub. It was like five of us in a garage kind of stage of the company. And, and then my third company was a bricks and mortar retailer for extreme sporting goods of all things. So I'd done these three companies that were all, you know, subscale. And I remember thinking about, you know, I wanted to really get back into, into, into you know, hardcore technology world. And I remember it was right around the time, you know, Google was going public and just seeing the great business that they've been building at Google and, and just feeling like really sheltered. Like I've had this same life experience basically three times in a row of this, like trying to get to startup off the ground. And yet if I'm successful as an entrepreneur one day, ultimately I'm going to end up with a big company, right? That's kind of the, in some ways, you know, not everybody's definition of success, but, but mine was, was, you know, successful entrepreneur equals big company. And I had no idea what that looks like. I had no idea what it looks like when you become a big company. I, I remember thinking like you see these buildings with like the company logo at the top of the building and, you know, people walk in the door at nine and they walk out at five, but I literally had no idea what they did all day because in a startup world, you're just scrambling. Like you, you just, you're just always running and, and you're just, whatever is top of mind, whatever's on fire, like that's what you're dealing with in that moment. And I had no idea what kind of company I'd actually want to build if I were to be successful. And I wanted to learn. I just wanted to see what, a, what, a, what I thought a well-run company looked like from the inside. And I had a very short list of companies that I thought checked that box of whatever my definition of well-run company was at that point in my life. Um, and I remember I applied for a very small number of companies and, and Amazon was the one where I ultimately decided to go um, because, you know, I remember interviewing with, um, with Andy Jassy and, you know, it, you know, one of the last questions in the interview loop was, you know, do you have any questions for me? I said, yeah, what is Amazon Web Services? <laughs> he said, I'm sorry, I, I can't tell you. You're just going to have to trust me. It's cool. And it turns out that is an amazing recruiting tactic um, <laughs> to, to be unable to tell the candidate what they're actually going to work on. I don't know that I would recommend it for most companies, to be honest with you. Um, but, you know, it's a combination of what everything I'd read about Amazon and, you know, Jeff's shareholder letters through the years just sent a signal to me that this is a really interesting company, that there's a philosophy going on here that is unique in business. And then coupled with, uh, with the, the, the great sales pitch, which is, you know, I, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you, um, <laughs> alert, made me want to join Amazon. But ultimately, it was about learning the things that I did not yet know of what kind of company did I want to build? What are the things I should try to replicate? And what are the things I should try to avoid as I'm trying to build a company? And I do remember thinking about my first startup Diversity, and realizing that in retrospect, we had not focused at all on culture, values, like really asking ourselves hard questions about who we were and what we wanted to be. 
it was just like grow, 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 do, do, do. And we were you know, 21 years old. We didn't know any better. And in retrospect, real, realizing that the key to success is not just building the product, but the company itself is the ultimate product that you're building. And that was something I wanted to learn how to do. And I learned a lot at Amazon. As I was reading the book, you talk about the fact that despite the fact that we know now that, I mean, especially after this year, every business is a digital business. There's still a divide between the business people and the tech people in a lot of companies. And those divides can be due to experience. They can be due to age. They can be due to where you've worked before or what your job function is. But whatever that is, when those two parts of the business aren't talking to each other, you're not getting the results that you could be getting. So I would love to just start, you know, explain to me why this divide persists. I mean, it's not like the internet was invented yesterday. It's been a long time now. Well, I think it comes down to the fact that different functions have different ways of thinking and operating. And that's natural, right? Certain personalities are drawn to finance and other ones are drawn to, uh, you know, being developers and other ones are drawn to sales, right? There's just different personalities and people find the job function that really suits them. Developers tend to be very systems thinking oriented and they think in, in processes and they think about uh, essentially how pieces fit together to build a, build a system because that's kind of how code works. And I think people who are naturally drawn to the world of software are drawn because they, the systems thinking really resonates with them. But not everybody is wired that way. And the result of that ends up being is you, you have this big divide between people who are business executives and people who are technically minded. And you see this all the time, right? You see the stereotypes of developers, right? In popular media, right? It's like there's our quantitative math geeks who are more comfortable with a quadratic equation than they are with a, you know, a human conversation, right? And these stereotypes propagate what people assume to be true about all developers. Meanwhile, you see developers talk about the business people. What do you have? Like the Dilbert pointy hair boss characterization, the bozo who doesn't get it. Um, and so each side looks at the other like, well, you know, you know, they're from Mars, I'm from Venus and, you know, uh, never will they meet. So the problem is in that divide. And what I wrote the book to do is to try to bridge that gap because here's the interesting thing. Both the technical people and the business people in pretty much every business, because every business is turning into a software business, they have the same goals. Both of them want to build these amazing digital products and experiences that are going to delight customers and be used by millions or billions of human beings and make the company money. Right? We share the same goals. So the question is, why aren't we communicating? Why aren't we talking the same language? And I realized that I had something to add to this conversation because I am a software developer. So I started writing code in the mid-90s, right at the dawn of the internet. And I kept building interesting things for the internet. But now I'm also an executive and I'm running a, a, a public company. And so I've got one foot in both worlds. And I can see the arguments. I can see the thought processes actually of both sides. And so I thought, if companies are going to be successful in this digital economy, they need to be able to bridge that gap. And I can use my special point of view here of having one leg in both worlds to help do that. And that's why I wrote the book, because software developers want to build great products. Executives want to build great products. They just need to be able to figure out how each other work. And the interesting thing is I wrote the book not for the software developers. I wrote the book for the business executives. Because I think it's really interesting that business people don't often think that it's important to really understand the details of how software is made. How does this whole thing work? 
you know, they kind of think of it as like, oh, well, you know, the business people have these ideas and then specifications get written. They're put in the top of this machine and, you know, you put in enough Mountain Dew and pizza and, and product specifications and out the bottom end of the machine, you get code. And that's what the developers do. They're inside this black box writing code. But really the best companies treat their technical talent as partners in solving really big customer and business problems. You don't think of developers as just people who grind out code. You think of them as creative problem solvers, people who have a particular skill understanding how technology works and can apply that understanding of technology to solving the biggest problems that a company has, that their customers have. And so I wrote the book to really try to um, help business people understand how that process works. How do you create a culture of innovation and of experimentation and one where developers are brought into the problem solving, not, not thought of as digital assembly line workers? And I think if more companies are able to do that, two things are going to happen. Number one, more companies are going to succeed in the digital economy. And number two, more developers are going to have impact in the companies they work at and have more successful careers. And I think those are two great outcomes. Yeah, one of the things that you just said that really struck me is when you're a business person running a startup, say you're a founder, non-technical, it's not like you're just ordering off a menu and the tech team is is making the food. And you're like, okay, give me this, 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 and this. And in fact, one of the points you make that I thought was really striking is you say, how do you know if your company's failing? Ask your developer. And so, because they're doing the, it's just so many times I see founders that keep on going with businesses that aren't doing well. And if they just talk to the people who were building the product, they would realize like, what am I doing here? And so, as we talk about actually crossing that divide and, and, making sure that the people on the business side are talking to the tech people and that that relationship is one that's creating value, not simply siloed. What are some of the things that, that we can do as business people? Because you did write the, the, the book for business people, and that's very clear. What are the, some of the things that we can do that will get us to make sure that we're, we're structuring the right relationship? The two biggest things that I would say is, number one, share problems and not solutions. And number two, Embrace a culture of experimentation. So what do those mean? The first, you know, a lot of companies, the idea is that business people write product specs, hand them to developers to implement. And what this does is it um, ties the hands of developers to actually contribute meaningfully to the, to the problem solving of the business. And so what I advocate for is instead of sharing solutions, i.e. a product spec, share the problem you're trying to solve and create a, a teamwork between business people and technical people to go solve those problems. And I draw the parallel back to um, when I started a, the surf shop, <laughs> the extreme sporting goods retailer, and my co-founder, Matt, was very non-technical, and I was the technical person. And the amazing thing was how we got into this working relationship where he would come to me and say, you know, Jeff, I'm trying to solve this problem. And one that I, I remember and I articulated in the book was he was trying to figure out how to incentivize the salespeople on the floor of the store to go greet every customer and, and help them if they wanted help. He said, you know, I think the best way to get that behavior is if I could show them and incentivize them with a conversion metric. You know, how many people walked in the door of the store and how many of them ended up buying something? I go, it makes a ton of sense. He's like, can you figure out a way for me to show that metric to, to, the, to our, our salespeople in real time? I said, oh, that's really interesting. So I started looking into those, those people counters, you know, those things with the beam of light at the door. When you walk through, it breaks the beam mm -hmm. and it counts, right? And so I started researching those and finding ones that had APIs. I could get the data off of them and then correlating with the point of sale data and blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, like a week later, I had this thing working. And I thought that was such an interesting thing because a lot of people would have assumed, oh, developers don't care about this stuff. But like he shared a really interesting, juicy problem with me 
And I wrap my mind around, okay, how do I solve this really interesting problem that a week ago I never would have thought was an interesting problem? And that, I think a lot of developers have that notion of they really just like wrapping their mind around interesting problems. And yes, those can be technical problems. They can also be business problems or customer problems. And when you do that, you allow the developers to come up with solutions that the business side may never have thought of, or in particular ways of implementing them that the business never would have thought of. And here's the interesting thing. When you share problems, not solutions, with developers, what I find is you get better software written faster with fewer defects. The other thing I talk about is is a, um, a culture of experimentation. And I always think that every big idea starts small. And so what you need to do is to try a lot of things to figure out what the next big idea might be for your customers. And the thing is, nobody knows the answers. Like we're on the frontier of this digital economy. Nobody knows the answers to like what product you should build or, you know, what customers need next. Like we are figuring that all of us are figuring that out in real time. That is the act of business now. And in order to successfully navigate that, you need a culture that rewards experimentation. And it's a lot easier said than done because in most companies, the way it works is, let's say an executive has an idea. I've got this great idea. And you say, okay, great. We're going to fund it and you're going to hand it to a team. And the team comes back six months later and the business isn't taking off. You're like, well, what's, what's wrong? It was a great idea. The executive had the idea. And typically that's you know, not a very positive career uh, move for that team if they failed to execute on that idea. But rather, I think more enlightened companies, what they do is they treat every idea not as something that just needs to go be made to happen, but rather as a hypothesis, a hypothesis to be proven true or untrue. And the quicker you can prove a hypothesis about business, about a hypothesis about what your customer wants or a hypothesis about how the company could make more money, the quicker and more efficiently you're able to prove that hypothesis, either true or untrue, the more progress you're making as a business. Yeah, and in fact, you have your your forward of the book is written by Eric Reese from The Lean Startup, who very much, I, I remember when I read that book, it really changed the way I thought about the world. And so I think that it ties in really nicely. Now, now that we've crossed that divide and we know how to sort of bring together the two sides of the house, the final question is, you know, I think people, especially non-technical people, when they're hiring technical talent, it can be very it can be very scary, frankly, because you, you're sort of like, oh my goodness, this person knows all the stuff that I don't know. And so for those people out there who are listening who are either hiring technical talent or looking for a technical or looking for a technical co-founder, what is your advice on finding a great technical co-founder or partner or part of your team? You know, you shouldn't pretend like you're going to evaluate them for things that you don't know how to evaluate. So don't pretend like you're going to evaluate them for code quality or something like that. What you really want, though, in a technical partner or a technical leader is someone who's going to welcome the challenge of of being a business partner, of not just being a a code monkey and someone who's going to say, hey, I, I write code. Just tell me what you want me to write. Ultimately, look, you can hire any number of people with that mentality if that's really what you want. But especially for a leader, especially for a partner or a co-founder or something like that, you really want someone who's going to say, yeah, yeah, like technology, code, software, that's a tool. It's a tool to solve a problem. And I'm here to solve the problem. And I'm here because I like solving problems with this particular tool. And so I think what you really need to ask yourself when you're meeting folks, is this someone who... Um, like me, likes to solve problems. They just have a different tool 
to do it that I need. And I think that's the best indicator of a great partnership between non-technical and technical people and the question of whether or not you'll be able to collaborate. You'll be able to share the problem with each other, ideate on the problem, and then let the technical talent go do the things the technical talent can do, which is turn those ideas into reality. Um, but ultimately, you need to see eye to eye on how you're going to go about solving big customer or company problems, because that's why you're all there in the first place. All right. The book is Ask Your Developer, How to Harness the Power of Software Developers and Win in the 21st Century. My guest today was Jeff Lawson, founder and CEO of Twilio. Jeff, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's been great being here. FOMO. Big news. We now have a brand new website. So head over to FOMOSapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show, and find out how to advertise. Also, head over to Spotify where you can find and follow playlists of the best of the show. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.